Open your Bible to the greatest book in the Bible, the book of Romans. And if you would turn there, chapter number one, and I'm beginning a new series, and um, I don't know how long it will take. I've laid out three or four messages. That's about as far as I am. But I'm convinced that the title of my series is true, the greatest book in the Bible, the book of Romans. And we're going to read from chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. And if you would stand with me, I'll read. And we're going to read what is called the introduction. I'm going to go down through the first seven verses. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Follow with me in your Bible, if you will, Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God which he had promised afore or beforehand by his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ. And to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, and you may be seated. If you open your Bible to the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, you immediately notice there are four gospels, four separate accounts of the life and times of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're written from different perspectives, as I've shared with you in the past. But they all are biographical, four biographies of Jesus Christ. And then the next book is the book of Acts. Acts is the only book of sacred history, the only divinely inspired history book that we have about the activities and the progress of the early New Testament church. And then we come to the book of Romans, the sixth book of the New Testament. It is the first of what we call epistles. The word epistle means letters. So these are letters from the apostles that were written primarily to churches, but in some cases, They were also written to individuals. And so we have a a number of them, uh, 13 or 14 of them or so. And then we come to the last book in the New Testament, which is a book of history, or prophecy, rather, a book of prophecy. And, of course, I'm talking about the book of Revelation. So 27 books of inspired Scripture that we call the New Testament the basis of our faith primarily. And among those 27 books, one book, though, stands so very, very tall. It's the book of Romans, the greatest book, I believe, in the Bible. For years, I've told you something, and for those who might be new and have not heard it, I'll repeat it. I think there are three books that a Christian really needs to master as much as one can. First of all is the book of Genesis. 
It tells us about our origins, where we came from. And then there is the book of Romans, which tells us about salvation and our relationship to the Lord. And the third great book would be Revelation, because if you don't know it, you don't know our destiny. So if you know our origin, you know our destiny, and you know how to have the right relationship with God, you're going to be in pretty good shape in your Christian faith. Now, the other books, that's not to minimize their importance. Every book was written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and every book is equally inspired. But to ground yourself and establish yourself as a Christian, Genesis, Romans, and Revelation would be three books I would encourage you to try to master. And so Romans I call the greatest book in the Bible. Adrian Rogers said about the book of Romans, if I were stranded on a desert island and could only take one book with me of all the written literature in the world, it would be the book of Romans, end of quote. Some have called it the constitution of Christianity. Just as our nation has a constitution, so our faith has a constitution, and it would be the book of Romans. Martin Luther wrote so extensively about it because it was the book that he was reading from when he came to the knowledge of Christ and salvation. And he wrote a, he wrote a commentary on it. Actually, he was lecturing as a theological professor in a seminary in Germany, and he wrote this little commentary. I have a copy of it right here, translated, of course, into English. And this is his lectures that he gave to his students on the book of Romans. And he wrote this in 1552. That would be a long time even before your King James Bible was written. And here's what he said in the very first paragraph. I'll just share with you the first paragraph. This epistle or letter from Paul is the chief part of the New Testament, and it is the very purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, and he memorized it, but occupy himself with it every day as daily bread for the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. End of quote by Martin Luther. And of course, as I said, he was doing penance one day, going up the stairs of a church in Rome on his knees, begging for forgiveness of his sins. And then he read Romans 1.17, the very chapter that we're in right now. The just shall live by his faith. And he thought, he'd been writing and lecturing and thinking about this book, and the thought occurred to him, if we're justified by faith, why am I doing this? And he got up as the story goes and left and went on his way, rejoicing that our justification is not based on our works, but upon God's grace extended to us and our belief in that. And so I believe With all my heart today, ladies and gentlemen, please hear me. Give me your best attention. With this book in your hands, the book of Romans, and the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, I believe you could face anything that life can throw at you. 
Now, there are other books that people think are more comforting that offer more consolation, books like the Psalms and so on, and they identify more readily with those. But I want to tell you, when the storms of life rage and the devil comes and puts questions in your mind, you don't need consolation. You need something that's a rock on which you can stand. And you know what? This is the rock. The greatest book in the Bible, I believe, the book of Romans. Let me set the context for you. Always before when I've preached books in previous years, and I've preached the book of Romans a couple of times, I think, through the years. But when I preached it, I was always in a hurry to get through the information, to get to the good stuff, you know? And then it occurred to me as I was studying this time, don't hurry through the introduction because if people don't understand the context, and if people don't understand the historical background, and they don't understand the language of the book, the grammatical construction of the book, they can read it all they want. They don't get much out of it. The book of Romans was written around 52 to 55 AD. We're not sure exactly. We can't pin it down, but somewhere around there. Now, Christ ascended back to heaven in 33 AD. So that would mean that about 22 to 24 years or so after the Lord Jesus Christ had left this earth, the book of Romans is written. It had only been 20 years. It'd be like you and me writing about something that we had experienced, a very vivid experience of ours that we were recollecting and writing about, and it happened back in the 90s sometime, early 90s. So it hadn't been that long since the Lord Jesus Christ had ascended. And what was life like for these people that he was writing? He says, to all that be in Rome here in the introduction. What was life like there? Well, don't think of that because it was a long time ago that these people were half-civilized barbarians or something in our context. They were not. Rome was a very highly civilized society, the most advanced in all the world, of course, The Romans were known for building roads everywhere they went in North Africa, in Europe, uh, across the Middle East. They were known for building uh, roads so they could move their armies. And they had great, great armies of hundreds of thousands of men. They built aqueducts. I was in Europe riding one day, and I saw this arch, these arches, and it looked like a railroad trestle. But the man that was with me said that aqueduct was built by the Romans, and we stopped, and there was a plaque, and we read the plaque. And that aqueduct had been standing for 1,900-plus years. It was still water was being transported by that. The Romans figured out how to do some amazing architectural things. Everywhere the Romans went, they brought peace. Now, they enforced it pretty cruelly. I mean, you knuckled under, you would pay a price, but... The Pax Pax Romana is what the historians call it, the peace of Rome. And wherever Rome was in charge, you can believe me, there was law and there was order. They maintained law and order in their populations. But there was the dark side to the Roman Empire as well. Between 50 and 60% of the people were slaves. And if you were not born a citizen, you were a slave. Now, many of the slaves were highly educated people. They were not uh, illiterate and underclass. They just weren't born with Roman citizenship. 
And you either had to be born with the citizenship of a certain class or you had to pay and you could buy citizenship in the Roman Empire, which many of the Christians, of course, did. But as a slave, they had no rights. They could not vote. They did have elections. They had no civil rights at all. They were chattel. They were owned by somebody. In addition, in the Roman Empire, it was a very, very immoral time when Paul was writing this. Very, very immoral. In fact, almost every man would have a wife, and the the joke was you have a wife for children, and you have a mistress for fun. And so most of the men had a wife, but they also had one or two, depending on how wealthy they were, they had mistresses. And everybody knew this. The wives knew this. They accepted that as their fate. Abortion was common in the Roman Empire, as common as it is in America today, maybe more so. Prostitution flourished. In fact, it was, they didn't think much about it. It wasn't looked down upon as we would do in a Christian society. And then they had religion. They had many religions. They were polytheistic, meaning they worshiped many gods. And so most of the gods were represented by an idol. And so these highly educated, cultured Roman people would often bring some little token gift or money and put it at the feet of this idol. And they would pray to this thing thinking that it represented their God. They didn't think about having a personal relationship with God and paganism. What they feared most of all was that the God would be angry with them and send bad weather and destroy the crops, or he would send disease or pestilence upon them. So they were always trying to placate the gods to keep the gods from being angry at them. And so their worship wasn't about a relationship or in loving and adoring and worshiping their God. It was just keep them happy and keep them from being angry. They worshiped the emperor. Once a year, they put a pinch of incense on a statue with a little incense burner in front of it, which was a pledge of loyalty. It was a civil religion. It had nothing to do with heartfelt religion. It was just simply saying, I'll be loyal to the emperor, and they worshiped the Caesars for many years. And they were sports crazy. The Colosseum in Rome would rival williams Bryce Stadium or the Stadium at Clemson or one of our NFL stadiums today. They would fill it up. In fact, they filled it up several times a week in many cases. But their sports were not team sports as we think of sports. They were blood sports. And they would, at first, they began to kill wild animals. They would put a gladiator down there, and he would fight with a lion or a tiger or something. And then it became even bloodier as the time went along, and it became gladiators fighting each other, and people would sit up in the stands and applaud and act like we do at an athletic contest and watch one man kill another man. These men were slaves, and then it got even worse, and they would stand a group of Christians or other persecuted minorities in the middle of the Colosseum floor and turn the lions and tigers loose and watch those people be ripped to shreds as entertainment for the masses. And so there was a dark underbelly to Rome. If you'll look there in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul talks about the heart, the condition of man. 
And I'm going to go through this, but not today, later. But he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he talks about how that men used to know God in the early days of history, but they turned from God to follow their own way. And he shows us how that God has given up on them in some cases and brought judgment upon them. We'll talk about that later. But the first three chapters basically deal with man's sinful condition. So in the days to come, you're going to hear me preach a lot about sin. Because if we don't understand the problem, then the solution doesn't matter much to us. We're not going to be very excited about a solution if we don't have a problem. And so Romans, that's, that's a little background of it. Now look in verse 11. He gives you the purpose of the book of Romans. He said, I long to see you writing to a local church of people that I may impart unto you as, as some spiritual gift and the end is that you may be established. So the apostle Paul says, I want to establish you in the faith. What does that mean? He wants them to be grounded. He wants them to be settled, to be mature Christians. He wants them to know what they believe. You know, one of the saddest things to me is a generation ago, the average American knew far more about the Scripture and about the Christian faith than we do today. With all of our learning and all of our technology and everything like that, we, we are entering a time when all the surveys tell us that the Christian population in the United States becomes less and less literate. We know less about the Bible, not more about the Bible. Where we used to go to church three times a week, in most places the church is dark on Sunday night and even often on Wednesday night where we used to have VBS for five days and drill the kids in doctrine. We bring them in. Basically, we entertain them in many places. Where we used to have a week revival or a two-week revival, unbelievable, in the spring and another one in the fall. Now, we don't have revivals. And where we used to absolutely emphasize training our people. Every Baptist church had not only a Sunday night service, but training union for an hour. And uh, some of the denominational publishing houses no longer even publish training union material because nobody has training union. Nobody would go if they did. And so we're not exposed to the Bible. We're not exposed to the Christian faith. And so we are becoming illiterate. And Paul said, I'm writing this letter because I want you to be knowledgeable. I want you to understand the Christian faith. I want you to be mature Christians and understand the doctrines because if you don't understand them, when the storms and trials of life will come, you're going to fall apart. You're going to lose your faith. I want you to be established in the faith. Chuck Swindoll said, quote, The letter to the Romans stands as the clearest and most systematic presentation of Christian doctrine in the Bible, end of quote. And I emphasize that because there's a trend going on in America, as I've just said, where we give less and less time to the study of the Scriptures and the preaching of the Word and the gathering of the flock. 
And the trend today, and I read about it almost every week, if I read the religious blogs or books or periodicals or journals or magazine articles or Christian newspapers, the trend is to minimize the importance of doctrine, to minimize the importance of doctrine. You may not know this, but our church is known because it is a doctrinal church. We emphasize doctrine in this church. Now, I know all the excuses and all the rationale for why people don't do it anymore, but our country, our, our, in many cases, our churches are becoming doctrinal minimalists. Doctrinal minimalists. There's no emphasis on the doctrine. It's kind of like believe whatever you want to believe. Now, that's fine as long as everything is going well. But when you get hit a body blow by life, you better know why you believe what you believe, or you're going to end up believing nothing. When people say, I lost my faith, no, you never had it. It wasn't grounded. It wasn't established. You just had kind of a supernatural, a superficial understanding of what you call Christianity. That's why God's Word says, study to show thyself approved. And a lot of people, boy, they can get real emotional when they come to church and and they can shout and all that kind of thing, get all happy. But I'm going to tell you something. In the darkness of the night, when you don't have any human answers at all, you need to have something that your soul is anchored to that will never move. And Paul said, I'm writing to establish you, establish you. Today I read phrases like this, deeds and not creeds. Doctrine is good, but loving Jesus is better. Life, not doctrine. It's not so important what you believe. I'm going to tell you, it is all important what you believe. I'm going to swim against that current. Let's talk about the author for a minute, the Apostle Paul. He was born Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul, Paulus, P-A-U-L-O-S, was his Latin name. He was born in a place called Tarshish, which was a city in Turkey. So Paul was a Turkish Jew. And Turkey, of course, still on your maps, you can find it. It was a large city about 12 miles from the Mediterranean on a big river at that time. It was a very sophisticated and cultured city, and we believe that Paul came from a wealthy family, that his family were people of means. He gave his pedigree in the book of Philippians chapter 3. He said, I was born in the tribe of Benjamin because the records were still there before 70 AD in the temple, and so he could trace his lineage. He knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He also was a Pharisee, which was the most conservative sect of the Jewish people. He was a Roman citizen, and we know that he was highly educated. He was trained by a man named Gamaliel. Now, in the Roman Empire days, they didn't have great universities for the most part. They had a few, but not many. But the preferred way of educating was if you had enough money, you would hire a private tutor. And there's a man named Gamaliel who's mentioned in the, in the book of Acts and in other places in the Scripture. He was the intellectual's intellectual. He would have been the guy who was greater known for his ability to educate young men and women than anybody else. 
If you had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, which is their term for being educated and tutored by Gamaliel, if you had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, it was like a degree from Harvard or Yale or Princeton. It was the Ivy League of its day. So Paul had that kind of education. Paul, we would have referred to Paul today. He was, a, he was probably what we would call an intellectual. He was a thinking man, a philosopher, and a scholar. He's first mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 7, but it's not flattering, the mention, because he's standing there holding the clothing, the coats, I suppose, the people who took off their coats so they could stone Stephen, the first martyr, to death. And Paul has a hand in that. And no wonder he refers to himself as the chiefest of sinners later on because he participated in the martyrdom and the killing of the very first Christian who was ever killed for his faith. Paul was there. He was a hater of Christians. And you remember he was on the road to Damascus with warrants in his pocket to kill Christian people in Damascus up in Syria when the Lord came to him and he experienced the most miraculous conversion of anybody in all of Christian history. Boy, you may have a great salvation testimony, but it won't compare to Paul's, I'll tell you that. The Lord came and personally spoke to him. I am Jesus, who you persecute, the Lord said to him. Do you know there are three different accounts of his conversion? Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 23, and Acts chapter number 25. And in one instant, he was absolutely transformed from one who hated Jesus Christ to one who was willing to die for Jesus Christ. And later on, he did die for Jesus Christ by beheading. And when you hear about the beheadings in Syria and Iraq today by the ISIS people, nothing new. The apostle Paul knew what it was to lay his head down on the block and have his head cut off in Rome in the middle 60s after Christ. And so what a man. Now, Romans is his first book he writes. It's the longest of his epistles. But he wrote 13 or 14 more of these epistles. There's a debate on whether he wrote Hebrews or not that we won't get into. We'll let the scholars figure that out. But at least 13 of the 27 books, maybe 14 of them, I think he did write Hebrews personally. And then our New Testament was put together. And so think of it like this. Paul wrote half of your New Testament. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, nobody has had the profound effect on your faith and mine as the Apostle Paul. And I wanted to introduce him to you in some detail. I don't know that I ever have before. I guess I assume everybody knows that, but I'm not sure that we do. And then let's talk about the theme for a moment this morning. The theme you find in the first verse. Mark the word gospel there. The gospel of God. And so throughout, it may not use the word gospel too often, but it uses the concept of the gospel over and over and over. This is a book about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, somebody says to me, because we have so emphasized it, we even have a big plaque up out here in the foyer with it on it. In the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 5, Christ 
died for our sins, that he was buried according to the Scripture, that he rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. Isn't that the gospel? Yes, it is. However, I don't want you to fall into something. That's not all of the gospel. That is a brief outline that Paul gave of the gospel, that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. But the gospel involves far more than just three facts, an outline, if you will. Turn with me the book of Mark, if you will. The gospel of Mark, the first chapter of the gospel of Mark, and I'll show you something very interesting about this word gospel. Now, the word gospel, you know, means good news, doesn't it? It means good news. The good news of God, Romans 1.1. Now, we go to the gospel according to Mark, so that would be the good news according to St. Mark. All these gospels, the four stories of Christ, have that word. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, Mark says that the gospel involves more than just three, three facts, that Christ died, he was buried, and rose again. The good news of Jesus Christ really involves everything about him. It's a very expansive thing, if you will, the gospel, the good news. Martin Luther here in his little commentary on Romans again, Martin Luther said to understand the book of Romans, and hear me now, I want you to get this. This is why I'm preaching on this. To understand the book of Romans, you have to understand the language of the book of Romans. And he says people pick it up and read it and say, oh, it's heavy, it's deep, I can't understand it. And Martin Luther said there's a few words you've got to understand what, how they're used and what they mean in depth. Law, grace, works, faith, flesh, spirit, justified, righteous, and the theme word, gospel. If you don't truly understand what the Bible means when it says the gospel, then you're not going to get the most out of the book of Romans that you could. The key words of the gospel. And the gospel really is the theme of the whole Bible as well as the book of Romans because the central teaching, now hear me, ladies and gentlemen, don't anybody please miss this. The central teaching of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is justification by grace through faith in and through the merits of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That God can make you a righteous being based upon his grace, your faith, your trust in Christ, and what Christ did on the cross earns the favor of God if you'll repent of your sins and receive that. That's the central theme of all the Bible, but it is especially the theme of the book of Romans. So look in verse 1 of Romans 1 again with me. It is the gospel of God himself, the gospel of God. The source of the gospel was God. Before there was a universe, before there was a heaven and an earth, God already had the plan of the gospel. It was foreordained before the foundation of the world, according to the book of Ephesians. 
Christ didn't come to the earth as a plan B to bail out humanity after he and she sinned. No, Christ always had the plan. God foreordained the gospel, the good news. Someday the Lord Jesus Christ will become a man, go to the earth. He'll die for the sins of humanity, and he will provide a rescue for every single one who puts their hope and faith and trust in him. God is the source of the gospel. No man invented it. Paul didn't invent the gospel. He simply describes it. Martin Luther didn't discover, he just discovered the gospel after it had been lost for a thousand years in the Middle Ages, but he just writes about it. Bill Monroe preaches the gospel of Christ, but you know what? I had nothing to do with it. I'm just a messenger boy who tells people this wonderful good news that God loves them and has a plan of rescue for their life. I want you to notice, secondly, that the gospel is good news about Jesus. We look there in Mark 1 and 1, the good news about Jesus Christ, it says. And what's the book of Mark about? What are all the gospels about? Who is Jesus Christ? And it tells us who he is, that he was God who became man for the sake of man's deliverance. And what what did Jesus Christ do? He lived a perfect life. Not one sin did he ever commit in word or thought or deed. Born of a virgin, and through that miraculous virgin birth, God came to live upon our planet, and he lived this perfect life of example before all people. And then he went to the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he died for our sins poured out his every drop of his blood that everyone could have salvation. And then after three days, showed his power over death by raising again from the dead and ascended back to heaven. And that's not the end of the story. The good news is he's coming back again one day. The gospel, who he is and what he did. The other thing I want you to get, are you with me still? Are you awake? Because this is not this might be a little heavier than normal, but you've got to get this introduction if you're going to master this book, and, and, and I want you to. The gospel is a statement of objective and verifiable truth. The gospel is a statement of objective, verifiable truth. Teenagers, please listen to me. Quit texting. Look up here. Give me eye contact. Half of you are not looking at me. This way, right here. Hey, every one of you, I want to see your eyeballs. Because I want you to understand something about the gospel. It is a statement of truth. It is objective, meaning it's not just the way I feel about it or what I think about it. It is objective. It can be demonstrated and proven. It's verifiable. You say, how could that happen? How did that happen? It happened like this. You study You go back and study the history of the Christian faith. Over 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ after he resurrected. That's an attorney's dream. 
What attorney would not like to go to court with over 500 witnesses standing out there in the witness room ready to come in and say, I saw him with my own eyes? Objective. Not an hallucination. Not a dream. Objective truth. Verifiable. Testified by 500 eyewitnesses. There are other historical accounts by writers and philosophers of the day There's archaeological evidence that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. There's the evidence of the church that an institution was born within his lifetime and that that institution still endures today. And no matter who tries to snuff it out, somehow it's managed to survive for 21 centuries now. There's the evidence of the church. There's the evidence of the scriptures themselves incontrovertible evidence that is available if you're willing and open-minded and you want to believe in the story of the Christian faith. We call it propositional truth. That's a big word, and I don't like to use big words, but I need to sometimes because I want you to be established, as Paul said to Rome. What is propositional truth? That simply means a statement of fact that can be either affirmed or denied. And you can believe it or you can not believe it. If I say to you, it's snowing outside, that's a propositional statement, a statement of fact. Now, you can believe it or not believe it. Does it snow in South Carolina in September? That's up to you what you do with it, but it's a statement of fact. And ladies and gentlemen, here's what I want you to get. The gospel throughout the Bible is a statement of facts that God originated and that Jesus Christ was the, was the subject of who he is and what he did while he was here. That is what the gospel of Christ is about. St. Francis of Assisi, famous saint, he made a statement that sounds good on the surface. And again, people today are kind of buying into this kind of philosophy. St. Francis said, quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And people gush over statements like that. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. With all due respect to St. Francis, there is no gospel without words. The gospel is a statement of facts. No matter how good of an example I live or you live, that's not the gospel. It may give testimony to the gospel, but the gospel is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. And so when people say today, deeds and not creeds, and the Hebrew word for that is baloney. We do need a creed. We do need doctrine. We do need belief. We do need faith, or our creeds are without, or our deeds are without substance. When people say it's life and not doctrine, no, 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 no. It's both. I'm not the gospel. On the best day I've ever lived in my life, Despite my best intentions, there are hidden motives and there are sinful thoughts. 
I am not a perfect man. If the world depended upon me living a good life to know the gospel, there would be no hope. The gospel is facts, verifiable and objective about Jesus Christ. I want you to get that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great doctor preacher of London, said, if you scrutinize my life or the life of any other Christian long enough, there will be enough inconsistency to provide evidence of hypocrisy. End of quote. He's right. None of us perfect. Don't make us the gospel. If you hear this week that Bill Monroe ran off with somebody's wife, they found him slumped over the gambling table in Las Vegas with a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand and high on cocaine and had a heart attack and died. Can I make it any worse? If you hear that, listen to me. It does not affect the gospel one whit. It means that Bill Monroe was a hypocrite, but the gospel is not my example. It's not my deeds. It is verifiable, objective facts about the Son of God who came and lived on this earth. The gospel is who Jesus is and what he did. You accept it or don't. Two weeks ago, I preached on Augustine's pear tree, and I noticed it was on television this morning. And I told the story of Augustine's conversion of how he was sitting in his garden one day with a Bible and didn't know even where to read it. And he thought he heard a child's voice. Now, that's unusual, but he, 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 he affirmed this over and over. Take up and read. Take up and read. Do you know what book? Of the, he opened his Bible on a whim, just threw it open. Do you know where the Bible opened? Romans chapter 13. And he read And through the book of Romans, Augustine came to Christ. Through the book of Romans, John Wesley came to Christ. Through the book of Romans, Martin Luther came to Christ. And through the book of Romans, if you don't know the Lord, you can come to Christ. With this book in your hand and Christ in your heart, you can face anything life can throw at you. The greatest book in the Bible the book of Romans. Our heads are bowed. 